Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. It's been a long time, uh, I think, since Duval County was this excited for an NFL season. Even, you know, 2018, 2019, post-AFC championship run where they spent a gazillion dollars in free agency (laughs) and they were one play away from the Super Bowl. Even the year after that, which I think was 2018, I still feel like a lot of the fan base had this mentality of, but is Bortles the guy? <laughs> you know, and, and there was still that kind of lingering doubt in the back of their heads. And then, of course, you know, things went south from there. This is different, though. They didn't get as far as that 2017 team did, but there's more hope now than maybe ever before because they're sure their quarterback is the right guy. They're sure their coach is the right guy. And at the end of the day, that's kind of all that matters. They made more progress last year than almost any other team. Now, they had a lower bar to start with than almost any other team. Damn straight they did. <laughs> However, that doesn't guarantee the amount of improvement that we saw last year. That was a product of a very positive environmental change, a meshing between head coach and the aforementioned superstar quarterback. That will breed a lot of hope, and rightfully so, in a fan base. We have a lot to go over today. Changes in personnel, some key additions that they've made in a few different ways between trades, draft, free agency, all that. Uh, you know, going over the coaching, going over the schematic nuances that made the Jags the Jags last year, and what we think might improve this year. So, uh, yeah. Lock it in with us for the next hour to hour and a half, whatever we happen to be spending on this, because it is Jags Day on Bootleg Football. Jay, Anthony, Autumn, roll the intro. Welcome back to the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. Like we said, it is Jaguars Day, and they are one of the more fascinating teams that we're going to hit, really, in the entire AFC. Uh, And it's a very uh, packed AFC, to say the (laughs) least. We've gone through the entire North. Uh, We've gone through, as of today, the entire South. Uh, We've hit... The AFC West, which is, you know, full of uh, giant monsters and giant robots fighting each other as well. And yet, I still think the Jags have a shot to escape from all of those powerhouses and go on a real run here. Uh, And 
I want to emphasize that this is not a normal 9-8 and eight football team last year. They were going through a lot of growing pains early. They started out, uh, was it 2-6? and six? And then all of a sudden, halfway through the year, they figured it out. They, they knew who they were at that point. Uh, and of course, Trevor Lawrence stopped playing hero ball, uh, which was kind of his major flaw in the first half of the year, and just started taking what defenses gave to him. And all of a sudden, we saw the Trevor Lawrence that we always thought we could see. He was calm. He was in control. He was efficient. And occasionally, then he would give us those those big, monstrous, crazy throws that, that we always love to see. But once he stopped forcing it, they started winning. And to be honest, over the last half of the year, they were one of the best teams in the entire NFL, not just the AFC, but in the entire league. We have a short on this channel that we made last year talking about Trevor right at that time when he was making the transition. He was making the jump and becoming that fourth quarter weapon where you wanted to hand him the ball. If you're a Jacksonville fan, if you're an opposing defense, you did not want to give him an extra possession because he was going to make you pay for it. And he was doing, starting to do that with regularity. And you said at the top, doesn't feel like a normal nine and eight team. We've talked about a lot of teams already in this series where we're like, yeah, so they won eight games, but it really should have been six. This team won nine games and it felt like it could have easily been 10 or 12. I mean, if you're looking at the power scores, which was like, you know, the bunch of different EPAs for different categories and everything like that, they finished above a lot of teams that won double digit games because statistically they were a more efficient team than most organizations in the NFL. They just didn't get their shit together until the back half of the year. So they were kind of heavily penalized by that, you know, first seven, eight weeks in the Doug Peterson era where they were figuring stuff out. But once they figured it out, they just didn't lose. Like they, they almost could not be beaten. They were that good of a team. And this year they could, not even could, they will be even better. Overall, they were a very balanced team and that's always going to help your power score. I feel like this is another win for power score where you have a nine win team that finished inside the top 10 overall when we rank those. So 2002 results, again, nine and eight. They did win the division. That was major improvement from the year before. Home record, five and three, very solid. On the road, also very balanced, four and five, last five games. They were one of the teams that this is, this is why the fan base has hope, five and oh. Perfect record, finished on a high note, finished on a very high efficiency in terms of playing well on both sides of the ball, both halves of the team or all three phases, if you want, supporting one another. That leads to the bootleg power score you talked about. Again, rushing offense and rushing defense, passing offense, passing defense, points scored and points allowed. The first four categories I mentioned were basing off EPA per play as our backbone stat, and we give them their league rank. Now, the rushing offense is the only number that's not great here, and it's 27th. Mm -hmm. And they didn't hang their hat on it because they didn't necessarily have to, and they still did really well. Passing offense, fifth. Mm -hmm. For having a new coaching staff come in, getting used to a whole new bunch of players, not, I will say, not truly having the alpha wide receiver, which is another change for this year. Coming in fifth with all those, again, portends for a very strong future for this team. Rush defense, 12th. This is a young, aggressive, sort of hungry defense that's already hanging up good results. Pass defense, 16th. Again, very solid, very balanced, 
very composed team on both sides of the ball, pretty equal. We'll take average. <laughs> Absolutely. When your average is top half or slightly better. Points scored, 404, 10th. This is a direct reflection of Trevor's growth. He put points on the board. He hung points on people through the last half of the season with regularity. If you can score in the top 10 in the league, you're going to win more games than you lose, which is exactly what they did. If they could have got on that roll a little bit earlier, the win total would have gone up, and we think it will this year. Points allowed, 350. That was good for 12th in the league. They're almost a top 12 or top 10 scoring defense as well. Take all six of those numbers, add them up, divide by six. Their bootleg power score is 14. That's good enough for ninth overall in the league. Very strong team, very balanced with the arrow pointing up at the end of the year. This is a team to get excited about. I want to to expand on, you know, on the the, the point scored metric specifically because a lot of that comes down to uh, red zone defense or red zone offense. Excuse me. Um, and and I also mentioned that you know Trevor was playing hero ball in the first half of the year, and that's where they kind of got into trouble. There's a lot of wasted opportunities. Generally, if you waste opportunities in the red zone, you're going to lose the game because you might only, on average, get like three of those in a game, like getting inside the 20-yard line. Uh, the top, off the top of my head, the top team in terms of red zone appearances was the Chiefs at like 4.2 per game, and average was somewhere in the, in the like three point something. The Jags were top 10 in the NFL. They were specifically were 10th in the NFL in red zone appearances per game, but they were 17th in turning those into touchdowns at, was it 55.4%. In the first half of the year, specifically, Trevor was throwing some pretty egregious red zone interceptions. He was trying to force things. He was trying to make throws that he absolutely should not have attempted. He was trying to put the team on his back. Mm -hmm. And... For a young quarterback, that is a mistake that is very common because they feel like they have to come into the league and they have to prove they're the guy. And it's like, dude, you can be the guy by just throwing to who's open. And to his credit, he learned that lesson pretty quick. And he stopped making throws that were unnecessary. It's like, you're already in scoring position. Don't fuck it up. Like, you can get three. Just make sure you don't get zero, right? And so once he kind of learned what types of throws he could attempt and which ones he couldn't, all of a sudden the team became a lot more efficient at scoring and, again, finished top 10 in, in total scoring. Um, but their their specific red zone scoring efficiency in the last half of the year skyrocketed because Trevor just started taking what was there, right? Um, you know, letting guys do stuff after the catch, taking a four-yard gain, and moving the chains to get us down to the eight rather than taking that shot to the pylon and getting picked off, right? That growth in particular from him was a huge factor that spurned that win streak that got them into the playoffs. And if he keeps that going this year and he just focuses on efficiency and occasionally taking a shot, but like a controlled aggression type of shot, so to speak, he will only get better from there. Feels like to me what came in the second half of the season was a greater understanding or acceptance, especially from Trevor, of what the coaching staff, specifically Doug Peterson, would accept from him and what they truly wanted. Because I think 
there is a bit of prove it mentality when there is that change and you are reporting to somebody else, probably had this experience, you get a new boss. What are they really like? What do they think is good? If they come in the meeting and say, that's fine, is that really fine? Or, And I think by mid-season, they probably sat him down and said, Trevor, this is fine. Take this. We will be truly happy if you do this. We are unhappy that you're trying to do more than that. You don't need to. And trust us, again, a very experienced coaching staff, new in Jacksonville, but not new to the NFL, and saying, our results will be better if you just accept this. We accept this. In fact, we want this more than what you've been doing. And it felt like that message got through midway. And he was like, oh, okay, so you'll actually be okay with the half better thing? Yes, we will. And then you started to see that ease. And this year, you're right, the next step is then learning when to sort of re-become aggressive. Like, when can I take that risky shot and still have everybody be happy with it? Whereas that was the default in the first half of last season, and the results were not good. When you look at their passing stats overall for the year, and again, first half for second half is very different, but overall for the year, they finished 29th in the NFL on average depth of target because in the back half of the year, they focused so much on easy completions, efficiency, move the chains, move keep the it chains, going. keep it going, don't yeah. turn it over. And so they ended up you know, being a, a, a quick game-oriented offense, very similar to the Chiefs. Like the Chiefs were, were a quick game-oriented offense. Mm-hmm. The Niners were a quick game-oriented offense. And they were, again, top five offenses. And so you know, kind of focusing on, on just being a point guard led to that. But at the same time, they were still averaging big-time throw percentage. So when they did take shots, they were hitting them, again, in the second half of the year especially. Um, in terms of average time to throw, Lawrence was at 2.52 seconds, second fast in the league, tied with Joe Burrow for second fastest. Only Tom Brady was was faster. Yeah. So he's That's very, a staggering mark. It for makes young it really hard to sack him too. Yeah. So the offensive line definitely appreciated that. They were going through some injuries last year, but as long as you just like you can die as long as you die slow, you know, because if the ball's out in two and a half seconds, who cares, right? Um, and then air yards percentage, very similar to the 49ers, uh, 52.6% of their yardage came through the air, which means, uh, what was it, 47, 48% came after the catch. So they were 28th in air yards percentage, which means they were four fifth in yak percentage, mm-hmm. if we just flip that number around. So I think if you if you put this offense statistically up against the 49ers and to a degree, the Chiefs, they look fairly similar. Now, the concepts run were different. The styles of runs that were called were different. But statistically, they were very, very close in the back half of the year. When you boil it down, the building blocks are the same in terms of how are we going to get this done? How are we going to move the chains? How are we going to build drives? What are our bread and butter plays going to be when we really need four yards, six yards, and through the second half of the season, they really dialed those in, sort of culled the plays that weren't working, culled those less efficient deep shots. They still took them. And Lawrence threw some beauties, but this year he's got a major upgrade in his receiving hardware, we'll put it that way. I would expect some of those numbers to go up because both that comfort that we've talked a lot about already and that familiarity – I would expect the big-time throw percentage to rise, even from being mid-pack at 15th. I would expect that to be 12th, maybe even 10th this year. 
and that air yards percentage to go up a little bit too. But again, they know they have an identity. They formed that and really solidified it. And to your word, got efficient with it in the second half of the season. And that became their identity because it kept working and that kept them on a roll. I would, I would imagine some of that continues, but we're going to talk about one, uh, one major. It's weird to call it an addition because he was on the team last year, but he gets to play this year uh, in Calvin Ridley. They could change a lot of those numbers. Yeah, I mean, having a true number one is always going to impact the young quarterback. We look at the difference that Stephon Diggs made to Josh Allen. Uh, we look at the difference that, you know, well, I mean, Tyreek was there before Mahomes, but you, you can't tell me that having Tyreek wasn't a big helper for yeah. Mahomes' development because Mahomes was not without his flaws early in his career. Like, he's always been magnificent, but, like, there was stuff that he certainly had to clean up, but having Tyreek on the field to kind of cover up for some of those warts was an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary boon for him, yeah. right? Um, you know, Justin Fields getting DJ Moore is going to be huge. Uh, Justin Herbert walking into the league and having Keenan and Mike was huge. Like, having a true number one, or in some cases, in Burrow's case, having multiple number ones yeah. is massive. And for the first time ever, Trevor has a true number one in Calvin. So... Yeah, all the good numbers are going to stay good, and all the bad numbers are going to get better. That's that's kind of the point we're trying to make here. Uh, in terms of their run game, this fascinates me a little bit because, oh, how do I put this? Um, it wasn't great last year, but I also feel like they weren't calling to their strengths. And, and I want to preface this by saying I love Doug Peterson. I love their offensive staff. They have a great offensive staff. Mm -hmm. They have a bunch of running backs on the roster this year, and, and ETN also last year, but especially this year. They have a bunch of running backs on the roster this year that excel in outside zone. They have a bunch of dudes that are great at outside zone. They were 25th in calling outside zone last year. Mm -hmm. They leaned more on inside zone. They were 6th yeah. in inside zone. They weren't very good at it. To be honest, ETN should be unleashed in outside zone. Tank Bigsby should be unleashed in outside zone. They should be in pistol. They should be under center as much as they can to run those types uh, of runs. I don't want them to run outside zone from from shotgun because it's it's wonky. <laughs> like there's ways you can do it using tosses and stuff like that. Like you know, watch 49ers tape. They managed they managed to find a way to do it. But generally if you're gonna run outside zone you want it under center or, or in pistol. And I want them to do that more this year because that's what their running backs are good at. They string stuff out to the sideline. They have excellent speed so they can press it front side, make linebackers panic, overrun it to the edges, and then put their foot in the round, put their foot in the ground, excuse me, and cut back up the field. That's what they all do well. In terms of getting vertical quickly on a run like inside zone, which hits a lot faster, they're not built for that like a lot of running backs are like I would say Miles Sanders is is has really grown into being a great runner on inside zone and how you have to read inside zone and kind of pick things apart because it hits a lot quicker that's not their run I understand they want to be in shotgun a lot I understand that they they want to you know lean into RPOs which a lot of those are built off inside zone I get that for the sake of their running backs, they need to cut that out and call more traditional outside zone stuff and and really lean into the 
Shanahanian-ish uh, sort of aspects to this offense because I think that's what they're really built to do. Felt like a lot of what they did last year was almost old school, quote unquote, establish the run stuff, right? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna run it to run it. We're gonna run it between the tackles. We're gonna we're gonna pound them. But again, they're not. They weren't staffed with a bunch of pounders. Uh, they've got better space players at the running back position. And I'm with you. I want to see that come up because as good as they are, if they want to be, if they want to move up into that sort of top five, truly elite tier as a team, they're not going to be able to be 25th in rushing EPA again, right? They need to be closer to like 15th. And to take that jump, it feels like I'm with you. They need to shift that balance to more plays that have more space in them. Mm -hmm. Inside zone has space, but again, not as much less space. I want to see more space and their their backs and some of their tackles too operating in greater amounts of space because I think it will move the needle for EPA per play and get them to be a more efficient team with those plays and not just a we're running them to run them, we're running them so we have balance, we're running them so that the defense can't key off on the things we really want to do in the pass game. Like eke a little bit of efficiency out of them. Don't just make them plays that you run to run. I mean, look at, God, just look at all, Travis Etienne, Tank Bigsby, Jermichael Hasty, Dearness Johnson. They all run outside zone. <laughs> like, what are we doing? God, I just, uh, that's like my one bone to pick I have with this staff. It's like, guys, call literally anything else, please. They're, you're not built to be the Eagles. Don't try to be the Eagles. Anyway, rant over. Rant uh, over. Let's get to the defensive side of the ball. Uh, Coverage-wise, they called a lot of man coverage last year. They were eighth in terms of calling cover one, meaning single high safety, man coverage across the board. Uh, They called it 25% of the time. That's a lot relative to the rest of the NFL for man coverage. Uh, They were relatively average in cover two at 15th. They were a little bit below average in cover three uh, at 20th. They were well below average in quarters at 25th, well below average in, uh, in quarter, quarter, half at 20th. Uh, but two man, they, they called a little bit more, a little bit more of an uptick in that uh, at 12th. So again, they do love their man coverage in Jacksonville. Uh, and I, I feel like they low-key have some DBs that people don't appreciate enough for how good they are. Like, shout out Tyson Campbell. Mm. I don't think anybody in the national media ever talks about Tyson Campbell, but he's grown into being a really good corner for them especially in man coverage. And, you know, as long as they keep adding pieces to go along with Tyson Campbell, like I kind of want them to keep that up because if you can play man coverage and they know you're playing man coverage and they still can't separate, I mean, then the world's your oyster. You can kind of do whatever you want on defense at that point. I call this a stand-up-and-play defense. They have been assembling dudes through the draft, through free agency for two to three years now, and by dudes, I mean athletes. <laughs> they have been assembling a straight up, we're going to stand up and play, man, and our guys are better than your guys, or our guys are as good as your guys. Like, we're going to stand up, like you and me, let's go. That's what this defense feels like to me. And they really built it off the backs of a bunch of really good athletes. I'm a huge Darius Williams fan. I thought he was underrated when he was here in town. They signed him as a free agent. He's on the other corner from Tyson Campbell. Um, Andre Sisco is a really good young safety who can absolutely bring the heat. Josh Allen is a really good young pass rusher for them on the other side who doesn't, again, get press. He's like 
Tyson Campbell except on the defensive line. Um, Roy Robertson-Harris, who was a favorite of mine in Chicago and just got a big re-signing deal from them um, because he is an ass kicker. This is a stand-up, man-to-man, we-can-take-you, one-on-one, without a lot of necessarily schematic help. It's not that their scheme is vanilla, but this is a straight-up, come-on-and-play-us defense. They let their guys go play. That's right. They they don't play complicated coverages that have a million different checks and that have a whole bunch of different rules and answers for everything, like, you know, what you see with – with a lot of the Fangio guys, right? They'll they'll have just checks for fucking everything, right? Um, they don't do that as much because as great as it is to have answers for everything, if you're making players memorize answers for everything, that's when breakdowns can happen, <clears throat> Minnesota. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they play you straight up. And uh, in terms of blitz percentages, they're another one of these teams that, that does like to bring a lot of pressure because they... They trust their guys to hold up in man. Um, so they were ninth in terms of bringing it in short yardage situations. They were seventh in their third and medium blitz percentages at 44.4%. That's a lot of blitzing in third and medium. Uh, they did back off in third and long generally. That's where we start to see the cover two stuff more come in. Um, and then overall stunt percentage on third downs, they were eighth. So It's a lot of guys flying at a lot of weird angles and extra bodies. And then once they get you into third and nine, you know, that's when they'll play cover two and and rally and tackle and all that kind of stuff. But it's a very, very aggressive defense. Yeah, it feels like they're going to lean on all those athletes to come get you. And, yeah, they're going to bring heat uh, and count on those guys in the secondary, those athletes in the secondary who can hold up in man. And they're just going to call a lot of it. And there are other defenses like this in the NFL, but in terms of like pure excitement factor once they're figuring it out. And again, understanding that you have a younger defense and trying to get them to play fast as fast as you can by limiting those rules and saying it's A or B, go get them. And you started to see that in the beginning of the year and it rolled in pretty quickly and by the middle of the year this defense was flying around whether it was blitzing whether it was stunts whatever else guys were playing fast and very aggressively and they all have a ton of athletic talent if we just list RAS scores for the Jacksonville defense That's it's a lot. <laughs> staggering dudes in terms of athletic score overall and they were able to turn that loose and that was one of our questions we had in this episode last year was like How quick are they going to adapt to the new coaching staff on offense? How quick are they going to adapt to the coaching staff on defense? And anything, I think they felt like, I felt like they got up to speed on defense a little bit more quickly. Again, we talked about that lag they had before they really clicked to Peterson's system on offense. I felt like the defense clicked even a few weeks before that, and you started to see guys play their assignment really, really quickly. And that's exciting when you've assembled this much talent on defense. I mean, their last three games in the regular season – now, keep in mind, it was it was the Jets, the Texans, and the Titans. But they allowed total 22 points across three games. That's hard to do in the NFL. That's like seven and a half points a game over the course of three weeks. That's, that's tough to do against professional football players. It really is. Now, uh, turning our attention, by the way, speaking of this coaching staff and, and who was getting these players to click halfway through the year, Let's look at the power structure at B, because I do think that Doug Peterson has assembled a very nice staff. And, of course, Doug Peterson himself is a great head coach. 
one of the only guys to to beat Bill Belichick in a Super Bowl with a especially with a backup quarterback. No easy feat. So he himself is a great coach. Trent Baalke, I okay. I don't want to to say I'm all the way back in on Trent Baalke, but I've been pleasantly surprised over the last couple of years. He's he's earned some favor with me over the last couple of years. I was I was all the way out a couple of years ago, and I you know just when I thought I was out, he, he pulled me back in. He's he's actually done a nice job over the last couple of off seasons. Um, and, and under those two, there's also a bevy of very, very good assistants here that I think Jags fans, if they don't know them, they should because it's a really, really good staff. I would completely agree. Offensive coordinator Press Taylor, we need to talk about the, again, the success they had overall in a year coming in as a new coaching staff, meshing with a team that had a lot of questions, not only about culture, but certainly schemes that were being run that were outdated and and whether or not they could make it all work in the NFL. Press Taylor had a big job last year. It wasn't just to install a new offense. It was to get people to believe again in, in a coaching staff and a mesh between players and coaching staff. And the fact that he was able to do that along with the rest of, because we know Doug Peterson has his hands on the offense for sure. And we were both really, I think, thrilled by his hire. We, we want to see Trevor reach the heights we think he can reach, and we we thought Doug was a guy to, to help unlock that. Press Taylor's role in that shouldn't be minimized, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's getting head coaching interviews at the end of this year um, if what happens in Jack, Jacksonville happens. That, we, that expect, we, th- we think could happen. Right. Yeah. If what we yeah. expect happens in Jacksonville this year, Press Taylor's probably going to be a hot name in the coaching circuit next year and rightfully should be. Defensive coordinator, we talked about the growth and the speed of that defense and how fast they were playing and how well overall um, the front end was supporting the back end uh, by the end of the year. Mike Caldwell, defensive coordinator, deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, Heath Farwell, this is a team that threatened on special teams. They had some kicking troubles, but um, overall a very experienced staff. We went through all of it last year. Um, Peterson brought a lot of NFL experience with him. Other notable coaches on offense, Mike McCoy is the QB coach, 19 years of NFL coaching experience, including four as a head coach. Again, mm-hmm. we see head coaches bring in former head coaches, either as coordinators or sometimes even position coaches or special assistants that they can lean on. That's a bevy of experience that can get can elevate an entire staff, and I feel like Mike McCoy is absolutely a piece to that. As a player, McCoy played in NFL, NFL Europe, and the CFL. So has experience in three different football leagues. I always think that's fascinating. Bernie Parmalee, this one uh, for a long time, uh, Dolphins watchers will be a name that rings a bell. He's the running back coach, 15 years of NFL coaching experience. I realize if you watch Bernie Parmalee play football, that makes you feel really <laughs> old. Um, played nine seasons in the NFL and was Doug Peterson's teammate when he was on the Dolphins. That part I missed, but again, it's a relationship business. Doug Peterson was on the Dolphins? Mm-hmm. Doug when Peter- was that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the piece is, you know, Doug Peterson had a little bit of a journeyman NFL career. I think I missed that one. Right? Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, I believe you. <laughs> and Chad Hall, the wide receiver coach, uh, spent six years on the Buffalo staff before coming to Jacksonville with Peterson. Former Air Force QB played with the Eagles, 49ers, and Chiefs in the NFL. So 
interesting. There was a lot of talk when Chad Hall was being recruited to be in the NFL. Hey, is he, a, you know, what are we going to do with this guy? Because, you know, Air Force ran Wishbone, a bunch of other stuff in his day. And it was like, is he a is he a wide receiver? Is he a running back? Do we do we want to play him? Is it like a it was a little bit before the Wildcat craze in the NFL, but like that was the type of player he was. Ends up as a wide receivers coach. On defense, Bob Sutton is the senior defensive assistant. Now, if there was ever a more general title. <laughs> Every Chiefs fan just turned this show off. <laughs> yep. And they're like, what? That's where he ended up. Okay, this is crazy. 50, five zero yeah. years. Of coaching experience, including 23 in the NFL. It's insane. That's staggering. And to bring that much experience, again, to have a you know former head coach and McCoy on the offensive side, Sutton with 50 years of coaching experience, um, including being a defensive coordinator with the Chiefs, which we just mentioned, and the Jets. Um, his first coaching job was under Bo Schembechler at Michigan. I wonder if he coached Jim Harbaugh then. Uh, when Jim played for Bo. It's possible. I don't know how long he was there. He might have. This is the scary part. He might have even been there before him. Jesus Christ. And then left. It's <laughs> a long right? career. Again, when you've been coaching for 50 years, that's a heck of a thing. Brenton Buckner is the DL coach. Nine years of NFL coaching experience already. 12 years as a player. Um, other. This is one of those staffs um, that has a lot of former NFL players. So other notable players on the staff. Tony Gilbert. Cody Grimm, who's the son of Russ Grimm, DeShay Townsend, and T. Mitchell are all on this staff. So Peterson, much like Pete Carroll and other coaches throughout the league, like to bring that experience from the playing side into their coaching staff, give those now young coaches uh, in the NFL you know, some of their first experiences, and it's just building a tree, right? Peterson's part of a tree, and now he's sort of building his own coaching tree. These guys are all going to go on to other coaching opportunities throughout the league, and, and who knows where they go. Yeah, it's a really fun staff, um, you know, multiple generations of coaches, especially coming to Sutton. Um, <laughs> you know, guys that have a ton of experience, guys that are just starting out their careers, um, you know, all different backgrounds, all different positions, former players, guys that, you know, started out coaching in high school. Like Peterson himself has coached at every level of the sport. Um it's just it's a really really fascinating diverse staff and i feel like diverse staffs like that um where everybody can pull from different mm -hmm. life experiences always tend to do the best right because uh, they're not a monolith they all think differently and when you have a bunch of different ideas in a room you tend to land on on the best ones um all right with all that information downloaded into your brains now we talked about trevor we've talked about Calvin a little bit, talk about the weapons. Uh, we will be talking about a couple of the young linemen that they've got coming up here. But with everything that we've gone over so far, would it shock you to know that Calvin Ridley right now, before training camp even starts, is already going at wide receiver 16? No. The hype train never left. No. I, it shouldn't have. Again, if he had suffered a grievous injury or had fallen off in some way, like that's not why he wasn't on the field. And when he left the field, the last time we saw him playing, he was playing at an exceptionally high level. Mm -hmm. So kind of nothing changed. We just, you know, took a year of wear and tear off his odometer. But other than that, 
This is a player entering a role where arguably, again, on a top 10 offense, he is wide receiver one with a bullet. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is uncontested as fact in Jacksonville. It was when they got him. They paid a price to get him. They knew it was going to be a deferred price. They were going to pay it now and not get his services till later. They did it happily because it's very hard to get a player to fill that role. And he is absolutely that player. It's not a projection. He's already done it in the NFL. They know, like you said, as you look around the league, when young quarterbacks get that player or they come into a situation where they already have that player, makes a huge difference. And you mentioned Joe Burrow, which is really interesting because he came in, he had T. Higgins right away, who was not a number one at that time, but played very solidly like a 1A and now I think is a one in his own right. But the next year they added another one and his game went up again, right? He had a good one, almost a great one, added a great one. The other one got even better and Burrow's level continued to increase. Josh Allen with Stephon Diggs. Major jump when he arrives. I think we're going to see that jump. You mentioned Justin and DJ. Like, we're going to see that. Young quarterbacks need that guy. And when the Jacksonville Jaguars said, Ridley's available, they threw their money on the table. They didn't even hesitate. They're like, when this comes to pass, when he gets back on the field, which wasn't even assured at that time. Yeah, they did it blindly without knowing without knowing if when. he was really coming back. Right, when that was going to pay off. And they did it anyways. They had that much faith in the difference he's going to make in this offense, and I think that's reflected in that ADP. Uh, small tangent, I thought it was so funny because like literally every draft analyst went through this where you know going through the pre-draft process, we're all looking at like depth charts and everything like that. We're like, what do the Jags need Like when we're filling out our mock drafts? And then... Are like oh we, they could use a receiver let's let's you know plug Zay Flat oh God they have Calvin Ridley like literally everybody went through that <laughs> one, that one moment we're like I forgot about that yeah and he is that impactful he really is like they they made that trade knowing that yeah they were gonna need a number one but they made, they got a number one without spending a first round pick on it so yeah. uh, phenomenal deal for them. Um, looking around the rest of the offense, Trevor Lawrence is going as QB eight right now, which is honestly right about where I would put him. Yep. Uh, Evan Ingram going as tight end eight, and Ingram, by the way, has oh my god, injected more than just new life into his career. Like he's turned into a top ten receiving tight end in the league, if not higher than that yeah. in this system. It's almost like he was born to be a Jaguar, and I. We were so frustrated with him in New York, but all of a sudden he goes down to Jacksonville and he's he's been amazing for them. So you know, I I love to see that for him. I love to see that growth and development. Uh, I hope he stays there forever because he's it, been awesome. It feels like when we were doing draft analysis for Evan Ingram, if we did ceiling and floor at that time, what he did last year in Jacksonville was ceiling. Like we said, if everything goes right, he could be this good, and that was last year for him in Jacksonville. So, yeah, we were frustrated with the early years of the Giants and I don't want to say misuse, but I'll just call it misunderstanding or, you know, misprioritization, whatever Well, he it was. did drop a lot of balls. That was on him. But I just I feel like the environment for him wasn't conducive to him developing and not having shitty hands, for lack of a better descriptor. And he gets to Jacksonville and he goes right towards what I think we would have both projected as his best life his absolute ceiling as a player and he does it in his first year there and i was like wow i thought he might be good i thought he might be really pretty good i didn't even think he'd be that good 
just to see where he was to where he is now, you know, unbelievable yak threat, catches everything, great in the red zone, um, you know, better blocker now even than he was in New York. Like, <laughs> Well, that was a low bar. <laughs> I know, but still, it, like yeah. everything that he was bad at that frustrated Giants fans, he got better at in Jacksonville. And, Which, I, and I don't know if that's just like difference in coaching staff. And that's not on Dable, right? Dable yeah. just got there. But um, like it, it really does... It really does show that coaching matters, uh, and I'm I'm happy that that he's got better coaching now. For sure. Um, now Travis Etienne is going as RB14, which also seems appropriate. Like if if I was convinced this was going to be like a pure like Shanahan West Coast run scheme, where it's like, hey, we're leaning into what Travis does best, um, I I might put him a little bit higher than 14. It seems appropriate. Uh, for for now once we get into the preseason and we can kind of see what their run scheme looks like we might adjust expectations but for now i think that's fine uh and then christian kirk as the clear wide receiver two on this team is still going at wide receiver 27 overall which when you compare that to even other teams in the division where like houston's got all four of their receivers starting at like wide receiver 60 you yeah. know uh the Colts' top receiver, I think, was Pittman at like wide receiver, was it 33, I think it was, or something like that. So for the Jags to have two receivers that are in the top 30 receivers being taken, and then they also have a top 10 quarterback, they have a top 10 tight end, they have a fringe RB1 at ETN. You know, Zay Jones is at wide receiver 55. Like Zay Jones, as their number three, is still going higher than every receiver in Houston, right? Mm -hmm. What that signals to me is that there is no discounts on the Jags offense. Everybody's drafting them all early. Everybody wants a piece of it. So if you want a piece of the Jags offense when it comes to your fantasy team in any format, honestly, you're not getting a value. You got to take it early or you're not getting it at all. It is what it is. Deal with the pricing. That's what hype trains are. If you're value hunting, you're not going to take a single Jaguar. Yeah, go elsewhere. Everybody's expecting a ton of production, and you're going to pay for it if you get it. Like, that's that's the thing. If you want a Jaguar on your team, cool. Probably going to get good <laughs> value out of it. I, I don't mean value. You're probably going to get good production. You're probably going to get decent return on investment. But is it going to be like a value? Is it going to be bargain shopping? Don't expect that. In terms of the season-long pickums, you you might get a little bit of value there. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, his uh, like if you're trying to go higher or lower on season-long passing yards, he's under four thousand. He's at thirty-nine seventy-five, which seems like honestly the only true value, like really good value that you're gonna get. Like that seems a little bit low. Maybe they're building in like for potential like injury, or maybe if they feel like they're gonna have a spot locked up and he won't play in week 17. Like th those are things that get factored into that number. But even then I'd still, I, it would have to be like 4,500 before I really start. I was going to say, what's the number you'd back off at? Because if that number was at 42, I would still be taking the over at 30, whatever. I, I feel comfortable throwing 20 on that. And, and if packaging he's playing, that with, with like the Anthony Richardson number. Yeah, if he's playing and these weapons are doing what they need to be doing, the chances he's going to be under four with what we saw last year 
very small. Yeah. Worth an investment. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, Travis Etienne is at 950 rushing yards, which, again, depending on the carry split that we're expecting with all four of these running backs, like you, you could sell me on that. Um, I do think that a lot of his production is going to come through the air. Uh, Evan Ingram is at 625, which seems low, but for tight ends, that's... It's up there. It, it's solid. Uh, Christian Kirk is at 800, which for a number two, again, solid. Like There's not great values with any of those. Calvin Ridley, though, he's only barely ahead of Christian Kirk. He's at 855 for the season. So maybe they're pricing in some rust there. Yeah, but I feels like it. I don't know. I feel like 855 is it. Like I would just package that with T Law and just go higher on both of them and sleep like a baby. Yeah. If if again everything works the way we think it should, even with all the distribution, even with all the talent on this offense, Ridley's still a number one. When it comes down to it, I think Lawrence is gonna get and be comfortable with him very quickly in those high leverage spots. And if you've got a player that's capable of you know, turning those in for first downs, touchdowns, big gains when you need them. The chances he's under a grand. Very low. It <laughs> uh, doesn't feel great. The The Lawrence one is fascinating to me. I, I want to know what's influencing that because in no world, even probably without Ridley, would I put him under 4,000. I feel like a lot of the quarterbacks uh, – are a little bit underpriced and mm. and maybe it's again like factoring in some sort of formula for like expected games missed or you know maybe they're expecting these teams to be run heavy like I would I would honestly love to like figure out who who sets <laughs> yeah. the number yeah, and just the ask them that question because yeah. in my brain I'm like Trevor Lawrence is not throwing for less than 4,000 yards like this is I'm, not I'm the mid 2000s Bears guys come yeah. on now so Oh, well, I'm willing to make money on it. So I was going to say, right. opportunity uh, knocks. Yeah. If you guys also feel like that's a, an egregiously low number, uh, feel free to use promo code bootleg over at Underdog Fantasy. They'll match your deposit up to 100. So whatever you deposit, whether it's 10, 20, 50, 100, they'll double it. You can use it on anything on the platform, whether it's those season-long pick'em numbers or if you're doing best ball leagues, going after that $15 million prize pool in Best Ball Mania, which is still going on, or if you're doing leagues with your friends, or if you're doing in-season pick'ems, you know, from week to week, you're filling out slips during the week, like whatever, honestly, whatever you want to do. Uh, not even just football. There's baseball, there's basketball, there's esports, there's baseball, there's, uh, I think there's golf on there. Like if you're a golf guy, like whatever you want, whatever you want. So again, promo code bootleg, they'll match your deposit up to 100 and uh, anytime you uh, deposit and use our sponsors, our sponsors come back and they help make this show possible. So we appreciate you for sponsoring us, Underdog. And with that, EJ, let's get to free agency. Some losses here in terms of players I think they would have liked to keep, but they are assembling enough talent at this point. It is young talent, but you got to look down the road and say, who do we want to keep? Who are we going to have to pay um, when that bill comes due? Is this player still going to be useful and valuable to us at that point? Um, so you're going to recognize some names here. Arden Key moves on. He goes to the Titans. We talked about him in the episode yesterday. Uh, Marvin Jones goes to the Lions. Juwan Taylor, right tackle to the Chiefs, was a big move. Signs for $20, 20 million there. 
Uh, Dwayne Smoot, the edge, still unsigned, played a third of their rotational snaps. I felt like a couple of years ago he was one of those underrated players that was producing way above his level. Uh, they move on from him as well. So in terms of overall snaps, probably the biggest one being Juwan Taylor. Marvin Jones was at 62%, but you got Calvin Ridley. That's sort of a planned succession there. Um, and Arden Key was at 40% rotational pass rushing snaps. But again, talked about the young players in that defensive rotation. Frees up some snaps for them to sort of come up and grab, take, and continue to develop. So it, it all feels like planned succession. Again, if you, you know, perfect world had all the money, you know, do you keep Taylor? Probably. Um, other than that, there's a, there's a person in line or a player in line for each of these players that they let go. I'll be honest. And, and I know we we caution against putting too much expectations onto a rookie tackle because, man, it's hard for offensive linemen to transition the league. You're, you're going against, especially at right tackle, you're going against some just killers mm-hmm. every single week. Every week. Every single week. Like, you know, even in this division, it's like, okay, we're going from – uh, Will Anderson to Danico Autry and, and Simmons to uh, like DeForest Buckner. Like you, you don't get a day off in the NFL, oh. let alone all the other guys they're going to have to play against this year. Uh, like I think they, I think they play against the Chargers again. So you're dealing with Joey and you're dealing with Khalil. Like it's it's hard, man. It's hard. There's somebody every week, usually on both ends. Like most teams. It, it really, in terms of top profile positions, like quarterback and then edge rusher, like quarterback and how to go get the quarterback. Every team has a couple now. Used to be like, oh, well, I'll flop to the other side. Well, the other side's Khalil Mack. And so my expectations for Anton Harrison might seem unreasonable because of that. Mm. And yet, if you asked me for a cap number, do you want. Juwan Taylor for twenty million or Anton Harrison for like two and a half. I'm gonna go with Anton Harrison because I really believe in that kid. Yep. He was excellent in college. I thought he was a great prospect, great length, awesome hands. Like he's a really, really good technician. Like I'm, I want to emphasize how well developed he is as a pass protector. Yes, has some work to do in the run game, but I don't. I don't see any sort of rawness that makes me think, ooh, he shouldn't be out there week one. I think he can be out there week one. I think he will survive. I think he'll he'll thrive. Doesn't mean there won't be growing pains, <laughs> but he's more ready to play than Juwan was when Juwan came out. Yep. So if you're asking me, am I comfortable with Anton Harrison being out there week one, even if he's only like 70% of what Juwan Taylor was giving us, but he's 10% of the money, that feels like a net positive to me. And there's growth potential there. He is he is not anywhere near his ceiling, or we don't feel like he is. A player that I think was better than a lot of people looking at him in the pre-draft process gave him credit for in certain areas. I feel like maybe... One of the reasons they leaned on him or, or lowered him in their rankings a little bit was because of that lack of completeness, because he was so good in one area and underdeveloped, pretty underdeveloped in another area. It's not that physically he can't do that. It's what he wasn't asked to do it and what he was asked to do the most in college, he was really good at. And there's more potential after that. So I, I like the trade-off and I certainly like it from a team building perspective. Feels like you're gonna grow into it. 
and not going to get Trevor killed on week one if he it's starts. It's ideal. Yeah. I'll take it. In terms of who they did re-sign, uh, shifting to uh, where they spent their money rather than letting it walk out the door, they did bring back Roy Robertson-Harris, who's been a very, very underrated guy in that rotation, about 60% of the snaps last year. Uh, $7.2 million for an IDL that not only is a good pass rusher, but is also good on early downs, too. That's a great value in the current IDL market that's getting more than three times that at the top end of the market. Uh, Devon Hamilton they brought back uh, at 11.5. He got even more money than Roy Robertson-Harris. But again, in the current IDL market, amazing value. Uh, Evan Ingram, uh, franchise tag, stuck his cap number at 11.3, which if that was like a normal deal, I would say "Eh, it's a little high. But as a franchise tag, it's locked in, so they don't don't have a choice. And also, like we said, he's a valuable part of that offense, so they had to keep him in the building. Um, Long-term deal, I would want it to be probably around like 9.5 or 10 but because it's a franchise tag, which is locked into like top five at the position money, had to be an 11.3 hit. And that's the way this league works, is you pay for production, past production. Now, there are certainly contracts where you grab an ascending player and you pay for potential, but typically uh, agents don't work that way. No. Agents are going to say, look, he just had his best year ever. He's near his ceiling that people thought he was at as a player. He's a very important part of your offense. No, we're not going to take less. Why would we? If we go somewhere else, we'll get it. And that's the sort of physical salary mechanic. The number's the number. Where they did get a value, though, was Andrew Wingard, who's a key piece of that defense. Um, You know, first of all, great in the locker room, great leader for them, solid player in the secondary that can play either in the box or you can put him in the post. Um, I do think he is rangy enough for that. Good tackler in space. Um, now, would I ever like put him in man coverage on Mark Andrews? No. <laughs> but we're also paying him three point two million, so that ain't his job. <laughs> yeah, it's a short list. <laughs> Guys, safeties that I really like in man coverage on Mark Andrews. Uh, no, Wingard's not among the list. But uh, find you somebody that loves you like the Jaguars love Andrew Wingard, and he loves them too. Like, you listen to his interviews, uh, you know, talking about the change from Doug Peterson to, or change to Doug, to Doug from Urban. Yeah. And, like, it was like somebody who just got out of a traumatic relationship. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, they finally felt, found somebody who treats him right. Like, he never wants to go back. <laughs> like, he, he loves Doug Peterson. He'd do Would anything you? <laughs> I mean, I don't blame him. No. But yeah, I think that's an accurate description of the situation. He's going to stay there with with Doug as long as he can because he loves Doug. Uh, in terms of third party additions, uh, they brought in Brandon McManus at two million, which you know, pretty reasonable money for a kicker in the current kicker market. Dearness Johnson at one point two million to be, I guess RB four. Like he's competing with Jamichael Hasty for. Well, he's competing with Hasty, and he's competing with Tank Bigsby for like the RB2, RB3, RB4 rotation. I have no idea where that's going to shake out. All I know is ETN's RB1. They'll figure out the rest in camp. But, you know, I'd rather have Dearness than not because he's a really, really good running back. Um, also brought in Josh Wells, uh, Chandler Brewer, Jacob Harris. Like, again, a lot of, a lot of little deals here and there. Um, 
and and they didn't really need a whole lot of uh, high dollar infusion from outside the organization. If Dearness Johnson doesn't work his way up to RB three, possibly even RB two, look, I know you just drafted a running back, and and you want to see what he has as well. Like Dearness Johnson's already been there and done that. Um, talked about players throughout this series who were sitting behind very talented guys in their in their room or their rotation and could start on a lot of teams. I feel like Dearness Johnson is that guy and has already proven that. Uh, to get him for one point two, to have him in that rotation. Currently listed at like RB4, but take that with a grain of salt because it's the pre-preseason depth chart. If he's not RB3, possibly RB like two and a half by the time we get to, you know, when the games are counting this fall, I'd be really surprised. He's a really quality player. That is a an extreme value. And McManus, for a team that had some kicking struggles last year, feels like a good bet to take. My theory for why they didn't bring in a lot of free agents from outside the organization, let alone spend a lot of free agents from outside the organization, is because they knew that they were going to use a shit ton of draft picks this year. They had 13 draft picks, and I think in their view, they're like, hey, we got a quarterback who we know is really good. He's going to cost us $50 million a year. Let's give ourselves as many chances to get good, cheap talent as we can instead of paying... Uh, tens and tens of millions of dollars to outside free agents. Let's just use those roster spots on young, cheap, talented draft picks. Pay Trevor either uh, either this offseason or next, you know, whatever he's going to be for that mega contract that we know is coming. Um, you know, they have a, a, a few other guys coming up in the next couple offseasons that are going to cost a lot of money as well. So let's not get ourselves into future cap trouble. Let's invest in the draft because... Any team that has double-digit draft picks, not even a a 50% hit rate. If they have a 30% hit rate in this class, that means they're getting like four or five starters, which most teams would kill for. Yeah, a lot of picks in this draft. Only five through the first four rounds, so a pretty normal draft to that point. All the rest are from round five down. And if you're talking about those picks really through – Round five, I was pretty much with Trent Balky and his staff in terms of evaluation, value. There's, there's a couple that came a little bit early. Um, after that, there's some what I would call wild swings in here. And again, they're below round five, so that's the time you're going to take those. But this is really the tale of two drafts for me, the top half, which is I'm calling as round five and above is one thing, and I was like, yeah, yeah, Wow, yeah, yeah. the Parker-Washington slander. I was not a Parker-Washington guy. Like, <laughs> I did not hate Those him. Those fighting words around here. I know. know. You loved him, and I was just average on him. Again, good value where they got him. But let's go through it. A lot of picks here. So let's get moving. Round one, pick 27. They start off with Anton Harrison, the tackle from Oklahoma. We talked about him. We really like him. We like his potential. Believe he's going to be a week one starter for them, which is great. Round two, this one was a little bit early, but I really like the player. Pick 61, Brenton Strange from Penn State. Definitely felt early to me, but was a guy that I circled after the combine and went, hmm, I got to go back, and I've had pretty good luck with those guys. If you at that point, or really any point after, said, that guy's going in round two, I would have said, really? In this tight end class? <laughs> um, they really liked what they saw. They think he's a very good fit for their system. Again, a little bit early for my blood, but I like the player. It's just in terms of value. 
definitely was like, Wait, what round are we in? I think it's because they know that Evan Ingram's not a Y. Mm-hmm. They wanted somebody who could play Y. And also, also play a move tight end. And also, uh, <laughs> theoretically play fullback, too. Yeah. Like, they just want somebody who can block. And that's Brenton Strange. That's a, you know, that's a really cool role to fill in, like, usually round four or five with an athlete. They did it in round two. Round three, pick 88, they take the aforementioned Tank Bigsby, the running back out of Auburn, who I think has a very good chance to be a better pro than he was in college for a multitude of reasons. Really depends on how they're going to use him. Is explosive, especially on those outside runs, can really rip off some chunks. Um, And given who they've assembled in their running back room, I see why they liked him. Round three feels like a fine value for him. Round four, pick 121, linebacker Ventrell Miller out of Florida. You can talk about Ventrell Miller because oh. to me, I was like, he's a Florida linebacker. No, I love Ventrell. He's so much. He's so much more than like your stereotypical Gator linebacker that everybody gets excited about and then they flame out in the NFL. Uh, he's so much better than I think most of those guys. Has awesome sideline to sideline speed. Was playing through a foot injury mm. the entire year. Couldn't even feel his foot because it was getting shot up on game days, mm. and still was just a blur to the sideline. Great instincts, great tackler. Um, you know, better in covers than he gets given credit for. Love that pick in the fourth round. I I don't know if he's going to start early. Because they're linebacking core he right will now. Not. You know, they got they got Devin Lloyd, they got Aluakun, uh, Chad Muma, who were big fans of last right. year. This to me felt like it's fourth round of Ventral Miller still there? Like we don't need him, but we'd be kind of stupid not to take him. Felt a little bit early to me. I was a little bit lower on him as a player, and the room is really strong. Like they have three players in that linebacker inside linebacking room that we really like. Um, add strength to strength. Not going to question their take on the value. They liked him there. Round five, pick 136, Yasir Abdullah out of Louisville. Guy we got to interview at the Shrine Bowl. You can check out that interview on this channel. Fantastic player. Really versatile and athletic piece that fits with, again, those sort of edges or outside linebackers in this in this defense. He's going to have a role. He's going he's gonna to be productive in this defense. And, again, go back, watch his tape. He can do things that a lot of outside linebackers can't do, certainly in coverage, um, and was a very productive sack threat at Louisville. Yeah, he had like 60-something pressures last year. Yeah, this this is an undervalued player that by the time he got to round five, I was like, you're just stealing him at this point. So love, love, love that pick. And again, that sort of line of demarcation, the last round five pick for me, pick 160. Antonio Johnson, the safety out of Texas A&M. Typical what I would call a third safety in the league now. Hitter, coming forward, good size, um, limited in eventually those coverages that all turn into man. He's Dan Sorensen. I don't want him (laughs) turning around and going backwards. But, again, round five. And at that point, I'm like, that's a full draft. Yeah. Like, in terms of number of picks, that's a full draft and a good one. Like, yeah, besides being kind of eh on the value of when they pick Brenton Strange. Again, nothing against a player. I actually really like the player. And the same with Ventrell Miller. Not a dislike of the player, but eh, maybe around early for me. Like, that's a really good draft. So you're talking about being back in on Trent Balky. I'm like, yeah. And then they had another half <laughs> to their draft, which is crazy. Again, all of these coming after round five. Round six, pick 185. You mentioned Parker Washington out of Penn State. I felt like this was appropriate value for him. I know a lot of people that felt like this was 
two to three rounds too late. I thought he was going to go way earlier than that. Um, if you look at his skill set, he's a shorter, thicker receiver. Like he, I think he's got got a doing quick math on my head. What is it, like forty pounds on Tank Dell, despite being a a similar height. Like he's just a way different build. He is built to take hits over the middle. He is built to be a slot receiver in the NFL that is put into harm's way mm-hmm. and catches everything. Like his catch rate was insane. One of the best in this class, especially contested catches. Um, you know, great deep ball tracker, specifically on like that same kind of like higher angled deep cross that we see Christian Kirk slice people up with. Uh, like that's like the best route for Christian Kirk is is running that deep cross across the safety's face and you know track it over the shoulder bucket catch all that kind of stuff. Yeah, Parker Washington does that too, mm-hmm. and he's got a little bit of yak skills to him as well. I see him as just another Christian Kirk for them. And knock on wood, if Kirk goes down, you can put Parker Washington in there, play the exact same role, and. Probably not miss that much of a beat, and and getting that in the sixth round, somebody who I feel totally comfortable putting out on an NFL field as a rookie. Hard to beat that for a six round pick. My favorite thing about Parker Washington, if we're listening to pros, is his hands. I think he probably had. If you were having a discussion about who had the best hands purely in this receiving class, and you weren't talking about Parker Washington, that group, you were probably wrong. He has tremendous mitts. Some of the other things I'm a little less high on than you are, but he can catch everything, and I love that. What's Round the job description, EJ? Wide receiver. There we go. Gotta Second word. It. That's the important part. That's right. <laughs> Round six, pick 202, cornerback Christian Braswell out of Rutgers. Didn't watch him. Round six, 208, safety Eric Howell the second out of Pittsburgh. Saw him briefly when I was watching his teammates. Did not watch him specifically. Round seven, these are all round seven picks. 226, OT, Cooper Hodges, Appalachian State. Didn't watch him. Round seven, 227, defensive lineman, Raymond Vahasek out of North Carolina. Didn't watch him. See, this is the difference between a pro scouting staff and and, and two dudes that sit around drinking whiskey, sitting in front of the window. That's uh, right. We can get through like 250 to maybe 300. Yeah, I, did draft three, season. I did 320 this year and I still didn't watch all this. They're games. getting to a thousand yep. typically is what a NFL pro staff. 752,000 so, depending on staff. It's uh yeah, there, that's when we get to the, the round seven and we're like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> we then, trust them. <laughs> and then we come around on the very last pick round seven, 240 fullback, Derek Parrish from Houston did watch him. And all the things you said about Brenton strange, I feel like Derek Parrish is that guy. Plus, he can rush the passer. Uh, that's what I was going to say is, like, he's not just a fullback. He is everything. Yeah, he's a get him on the field and figure it out. Yeah, tremendous athlete. Uh, you heard me correctly. Rushes the passer, played fullback, can play what used to be called H-back. Uh, really could be wide tight end if you wanted him to be athletically. Um, just a crazy, interesting football player. Sure, take a shot in round seven. The fact that you picked a similarly talented athletic player who I think has more potential at his would, given spot. I would love to see somebody at his height play wide tight end just because. He could do it. I wouldn't put <laughs> it past strong. him. He's really strong. Wouldn't put it past him. So, uh, again, sort of a whole second half of the class there of lottery tickets, dart throws that this scouting staff really likes and thinks can fit in. 
loved your description at the top of this talking about look we know the balloon payment to trevor is coming we need to fill the roster with guys that are going to develop that are cheap labor they did it here i fully expected them to trade a bunch of these picks away especially after their haul through round five i was like well you pretty much did it you can try and kick those down the road for future assets nope they spent them like all they didn't trade any of them away now uh all of that brings us to our last two segments we have the report card and then our final ceiling and floor for win totals for this team uh which obviously jags fans are waiting on beta breath <laughs> yeah but we'll do a report card first if you're uh not familiar with the show this is where we go over four different categories front office coaching staff offensive talent and defensive talent and we grade them one of three grades, up, down, or even for where they're at right now relative to where they were at the end of the season. Uh, you know, Basically, what's gotten better, what's gotten worse, what's roughly the same. Or maybe when it comes to the front office, like what are our vibes for them? Uh, front office, we did praise Balky, mm-hmm. but also just with my preconceived notions about Balky, <laughs> I'm going to go even. Which is a win because, boy, I was down on Trent Baalke something fierce a couple years ago. So I I have backed off my he's got to go crusade. Flaming flaming hatred. And I'm I'm in a wait and see pattern now. And we'll see a year from now what this looks like. If he puts together another good offseason, I'm like, all right, fine. We're, We're back on board. But for now, he has earned the wait-and-see even grade for me, which is a win. Uh, Coaching staff, we're going to go even there as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, that is not a negative. That's just acknowledging this is a good staff that was good last year and is still good now. Offensive talent, up. No other argument than up. You're adding Calvin Ridley. Uh, You're adding a lot of the rookies that we're excited about. Um, Trevor is... Awesome, and we think that he's going to only get better this year because he's he's not doing that hero ball stuff anymore. Like, not only is this quarterback on the rise, but the talent around him is better than it ever has been. Uh, I'm super excited for this offense. Uh, defensive talent, though, also up. Even though this defense had some teeth last year, they've got even more this year. There's some young guys both in the secondary and in the linebacking core, and up front that we're super excited about. There's at least two or three that I think have superstar potential. Um, you know, We'll see if they kind of take that next step this year. But this could very easily be a team a la Cincinnati or Buffalo um, that finishes like top, I, I won't say top six to seven. Let's, let's go conservative and say top ten on both sides of the ball in every category. It's crazy to think about this time last year when we recorded this episode. And we're like, well, it's got to be better than it was under Urban Meyer. They've got a lot of young talents. all about how they gel. We talked about all that stuff at the top of the episode in terms of how good the offense was, how much the defense was shutting down opponents at the end of last year. They're starting this year at that point. And all the growth we saw last year from that uncertainty, we're already past all that. We already have answers on both sides of the ball. We have all these young players with another year of experience. Like they're starting from 
where they finished at the end of last year. They don't have to install new systems. They don't have to get used to a new coaching staff. That's a huge head start for this team that was already really good at the end of last year. There should be bona fide excitement about them as a true contender in the AFC. Yep. They are not a flash in the pan. This is not, you know, 2017 part de. Like, they're a real football team. They're a real threat. Kansas City should be worried about them. Buffalo should be worried about them. Cincinnati, Miami, go down the list. Like, if I was those, you know, top dogs in the AFC, I'm more worried about Jacksonville than I am about Aaron Rodgers on the Jets. I'm more worried about Jacksonville than I am, you know, Sean Payton uh, turning Russell Wilson around and, and, you know, kind of getting Denver back on track. Like, Jacksonville is the team that's the snake in the grass. They are because they've got everything. And that's why, you know, kind of looking at ceiling and floor here, they're going to earn one of the higher ceilings in the entire conference at 12 wins for me. I think that not only could they win double-digit games this year, I think they will win double-digit games. And they could get up to 12. They could challenge for a first seed. They could be right there with every other top team in the conference that we're projecting to be like a 12 or 13 win ceiling. They're right there. And that's why my floor also is nine, because I can't see this team short of something catastrophic happening to Trevor Lawrence. This team's not finishing under 500. Like last year was the floor and they went to the playoffs and won a playoff game. Last year was the bottom. It's only up from here. Now we see this team very similarly. I'm going to 13 as the top because with the heights we saw from Trevor throughout last year, but especially in that second half, he still had some heroics in the first half while he was figuring things out, but it was mixed in with those plays that we were like, oh, you really set your team back. He eliminated those and kept making the highlight plays and started to make them more regularly. You've surrounded him with even more offensive talent. You've given him a true alpha. You've got the second year of familiarity. He already starts with all the shorthand in the Peterson offense. If he continues on that arc, yeah, we're talking about double digits, but we could be talking about, you know, 13 is high double digits. It's only losing four games Mm -hmm. in a year. But this team is capable of that because they are good on both sides of the ball. It's not like, well, if the offense gets hot, they can just boat raise people. The defense can shut you down as well. And they're going to be a year better. This is an ascending team that could win 13 games at the top. My floor is the same as yours, nine. Too much talent, too much coaching talent, too much playing talent to do worse than that. It's a great team. And I'm I'm happy for Jacks fans because I feel like they they earned this one. You know, it, it's not the same as, as the last time they were good where it was more about going on a spending spree than it was about doing it, quote unquote, the right way, you know, building through the draft, getting a young quarterback, having a coach you believe in. Like, this is how dynasties are supposed to be built. I'm not saying they're a dynasty, but like, if you look across at all the dynasties that have happened in the NFL, this is how they're built organically, slow, the hard way. But once you get to that mountaintop, it becomes a lot harder to fall off of it if you're building the team like this. So uh, I'm happy for Jack fans. I really am. I think that they've waited years and years and years to have a squad like this, to have a future like this. And uh, I, I, I really do hope that they enjoy it while they're there. We're psyched about the team. 
If you're psyched about the team, do like we did. Get new Jags gear. Head to our clothing partner at homage.com. I went with the more traditional Jags logo. (laughs) Brent, what'd you get? I don't know if people can see it on the camera. Uh, This is Tank Bigsby's Jags logo. If people saw the video of like the NFL rookies, uh, I'll throw a picture of it on screen. Um, But if people saw the video of the NFL rookies that are like tasked with blind painting their own team's logo, Homage took that put it onto a shirt and they have the NFL license so they can do that. Uh, other people cannot, but I, I saw that and immediately was like, Oh my God, I need that shirt. Like I'm not even a Jags fan, but I need that shirt. Instant by our homage rep. Shout out to Kevin. He said, what, you know, what shirts do you want for the series? We're like, we both want Jag shirts. And I was like, I've always appreciated the Jags logo. I didn't have any Jags clothing. I'm excited about yeah, the team. Got, this year. <laughs> and he's like, I gotta have that busted ass drawing of a Jaguar that tank Bigs did. But look, they have designs to satisfy everybody from mild to wild. Um, T-shirts to hoodies, some of the softest gear you'll ever wear. And every purchase you make using the link in the description helps the podcast. We get a cut of that. So go refresh your Jags gear. It's going to be a run. You're going to want to look tight with a nice new fit. You can do it. We'll be back tomorrow to pick a division winner as well as picking offensive and defensive rookie of the year within the AFC South. Uh, You know, uh, offensive, defensive player of the year within the division, you know, division MVP, coach of the year, all that kind of stuff. It is our AFC South division uh, spectacular. Extravaganza. Yeah. Uh. It's, it's, uh, it's our weekly recap show. <laughs> so come back for that if you want to hear more Jags goodness. And then come back next week for NFC East, right? Correct. And we're going to be doing that from up in Washington. Because it's finally time for me to go on the road in this little home and home that EJ and I the home and home series. I don't have to put my butt on a plane for once, but uh, we will have a backdrop that is. I don't want to say equally stunning because that's difficult, but uh, oh, it absolutely is different. But it's cool. It's cool. Yeah, a little bit more uh, nature forward. Maybe. So So, yeah, we'll be back next week with the NFC East from uh, sunny, beautiful Pacific Northwest. And until then, later.